as you noticed, uh, Hideo Kojima is not here with us uh, tonight, and I want to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, Mr. Kojima had every intention of uh, being with us tonight, uh, but unfortunately he was uh, informed by a lawyer representing Konami uh, just recently that uh, he would uh, not be allowed to uh, travel to uh, tonight's awards ceremony to uh, accept um, any awards. It's, uh, he's still under an employment contract and it's, uh, it's disappointing and it's, it's inconceivable to me that a, an artist like Hideo would not be allowed to come here and celebrate with his peers and uh, his fellow uh, teammates uh, such an incredible game as Metal Gear Solid V. But that's the situation we're in. Uh, Hideo uh, is in Tokyo right now watching the show. Um, so we want, want you to know, Hideo, that we're thinking of you. And um, we miss you. Welcome back to Furidashi Pod. I am your co-host, Lauren Ash, and I am here with... Nicholas Tyson, because I guess we're using two names now. I guess we're using two <laughs> names now. Well, we're using two names because we got to speak to our friend, Masao Kobayashi, this past week, and it was so do. enlightening. I love getting schooled by developers that have been in the industry longer than I have been. And well, he really... just corrected all your opinions on Assassin's Creed, which I thought he was great. He did. He corrected all my opinions on Assassin's Creed. But he actually did the nice uh, compliment sandwich. Yeah. Uh, this is this is how you give feedback or what people have. Let me rephrase this. This is what the authors who try to tell you how to give better feedback give you this really bullshit way of giving feedback, which is the compliment sandwich of, I really like your hair, but that dress makes you look fat. But it's okay because the other dress made you look better. Like that's the compliment <laughs> yeah. sandwich, right? That's not Honestly, how it all works, of it's bad. but yeah. <laughs> it's not how it works. But in games, in games, that's how it works, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, this feature just isn't really coming across. The other feature did better. I like your hair. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's, it, it becomes that random and it comes off honestly. I really enjoy talking to you. Everything that you've done for this game is wrong and we're going to fire you. But, you know, you have a sparkling personality. Yeah. No, it's great. It, it really is great. It's like everyone says that you're great to work with. Um, you know, the, the features that you do are always really fun. You just don't do enough of them. Uh, like anyway. You just don't do that. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a real one. Whew, yeah. That one will get you. You're like, wait a second. I do really good work, but I need to do more work. That's all I'm hearing. Like, yeah. So, yeah. And but so. so <laughs> Sorry, we're going to ramble unless we. No, I, I bring I'm, I'm up all those examples. And yeah. I, yeah, we're going to rein this back. Uh, I bring up all those examples, though, because something that comes up, right, with the compliment sandwich uh, or with. When you give feedback to people or you give creative direction is what is the role of the creative director in the video game industry. And after being schooled and talking to Masao where he did the, like, all of your critiques are fair and valid, here's some stuff, like, to help, like, illustrate other things. Off the record, we're not talking about it. And we're not going to yeah. go into it today, FYI. No, but it got me thinking about how much, right, a creative director influence a project. Or alternatively, right, how much a creative director doesn't influence a project. Yeah. And 
how does that relate right to the auteur theory which is when you are a video game developer auteur you're the one person right that created braid and people idolize and worship those game dev heroes that's currently trending on twitter right now i'm sure you've seen it yeah. you don't idolize people like that's kind of the Thou shalt not have idols. Yeah, it's, it's, Everyone it's go idea. read the Bible. Very, very it's a bad very idea. bad idea. Very bad idea. And I think that how does that all relate together? So that is our intro for this. And I'm going to give it away to Nicholas so he can talk more about not just right, the auteur, because I think that we use that word sometimes negatively. We can also use that word positively. But how does the theory of, of all of that kind of encapsulate into what we now consider right, a creative director of games? Yeah, so auteur theory is something, so for those of you who aren't familiar with like film studies as a discipline and its history, a lot of the sort of the theoretical, the earliest theoretical perspectives in film studies came from the French, because, so so that's why a lot of these terms have, a lot of these things have French terms like auteur, so A-U-T-E-U-R, um, which is also just the, the French word for author. Um but the the idea of sort of like the the director of a film as its author and for those of you who aren't aware of sort of like the etymological history of the concept of the author the author is not just like the person who wrote the book or the screenplay or, or whatever have you what have you um embedded in that idea is the notion of authority like the author is the authority of the text so in other words they're not just the person who happened to have put words to paper they are the person to whom they're, they're essentially like the demigod of the text and you see this in a lot of like particularly with say ya authors like the, the most obvious example being someone like joanne rowling whom we used to all adore, but now all hate for different reasons. But in many ways, she is treated as the the authority, like the the, the god emperor, <laughs> as myself put it, of of those texts, regardless of how absolutely like batshit she is sometimes about like her opinions. As like she she clearly is not a very good reader of her own books. But the thing is, people still go to her as the authority for that. So the thing is, the idea is that the the director of a film or the creative director of a game isn't necessarily the person who is doing everything, but they are the person who functions as the kind of authority for what the game is. And the thing is, in certain cases, like that authority can be really strong. It can be really diffuse. It can be really weak. But it is a useful way for thinking about games and whether or not they have like a clear, concise vision and clear creative direction, because the auteur is the person who is not only like they're not just providing the vision. They're not just sort of like the captain or sort of like the general of the army of the game devs who produce something. They are also the person for whom the game is meant to represent. So in many, so if you think of an example of a game that like, you know, Lauren and I play a lot, Final Fantasy XIV, um, Yoshida Naoki or Yoshipi as he's sometimes called, he is not just like the authority on the game, but in many ways the game is considered to be sort of representative of him as a developer. And so it works both ways. Like the, so it, it's both that the, the text, so to speak, that you have before you, in this case, a video game, is determined by this person but it is also representative of them so it, there's this weird problem with within the confines of auteur theory where on the one hand like you have the sort of like <laughs> dictatorial presence within the work of art 
But at the same time, the work of art also sort of like rules people's understanding of who that person is in the same way that say like the Harry Potter books did a lot to determine people's perceptions of Joanne Rowling. Many of those perceptions they're now realizing were not necessarily accurate of who she is. Yeah. And in games, we see this a lot when we talk about, say, developers like Jonathan Blow. Okay. And so that's that's the first name that comes to my mind because he made this very well-received game called Braid. And yeah. he is kind of what I call the epitome of the discourse that surrounded this a few years ago when Braid came out and also after it. Because I do believe that a lot of people really respected Jonathan Blow and he, I think he gave some GDC talks. It was a very well-received indie game. And he did make the entire thing by himself. Um, that is just one kind of one aspect of the auteur of someone when you make something all by yourself you are kind of the auteur because you are the only person to point to for that game. Yeah. But when it comes to something like Final Fantasy or a AAA studio where the creative director is largely not responsible for the entire game's inception, yeah. nor are they really responsible for all of that game's, say, creative authority, right? Yeah. Like, I know we just brought up the example of Yoshi P, but at the end of the day, like, how many of the decisions that he made right, actually went or were made by him, I guess oh, yeah. is what I'm yeah. trying to say, right? Well, yeah, and that's embedded in the theory itself because in many ways the auteur theory is actually not meant to describe like, you know, the lone indie filmmaker or the lone indie game dev. That That's actually not what they're talking about at all. What they're trying to describe is a kind of authorial presence in something that is mass produced. Like that, that requires an army of individuals to produce. And yet, despite that, somehow has this like authorial presence within it. So I actually think the better, maybe one of the better examples then, because I know that for me, I think it gets to the problem. The problem point comes when people say, um, and I'll bring up another creator, Toby Fox of Undertale, which was, yeah. is a fantastic game. Go play it. Um, he is never seen in the same light as other creators because I think he recognizes a lot of the other influences that went into his game. Yeah. Versus I think that the point, the pain point comes when someone is held up and idolized as like the authorial creator of a project, be it a solo endeavor or a multi-person endeavor. And the yeah. person that comes to my mind, though I love this person, at least I love following them on social media and I love the discourse surrounding them, is Hideo Kojima. Yeah, definitely. Like he is definitely, I think, the person where people are like, that is 100%. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he even has a, I think for me, it was the E3 reveal of the director's cut of Death Stranding. Like, what is the director's cut? More walking? Yeah. <laughs> more, more walking. More more pensive walking. <laughs> more pensive walking? <laughs> like does Hideo Kojima and like Mads do they get together at the end? Is that is that what's actually going oh, to yeah, happen? Yeah, author meets creation. Ooh, yeah. Author meets Ooh. creation, meta narrative. <laughs> like this whole time it was Kojima all along. If this actually happens in the game, I 100% called it here. Everyone pay me money. Oh money. yeah, but the but the thing is like the if, whole. Oh, you know, if that happens yeah. in the game, we're gonna have a once month like tier where everyone will pay me <laughs> and us support future prediction. We call it Lauren's future prediction model. Furidashi Oracle. <laughs> Are we gonna have Furidashi an Oracle? Oracle. Oh, an Oracle because of Oracle. <laughs> He's behind a blanket right now, but I love this. Yeah. Done. Okay. Sorry. Anyway. Yeah, but I mean, but there, are, but there are plenty of examples. Like, um, you know, Chris Metzen at Blizzard is definitely sort of, of yeah, I, yeah. 
I can see it. You guys can't see it, but I can see it. I'm special. <laughs> you guys don't get the video. I do. Um, but, but Kojima is a great example because the thing is like Metal Gear is what it is because of him. And people's opinions and and it's a perfect example of precisely that sort of like um two-way street that i was talking about earlier like metal gear is what it is because of him but also people's perceptions of who he is as a game developer come from that series of games and like what game (laughs) developer? i'm pausing like what game (laughs) developer doesn't want to be kojima yeah like come on i i want to be kojima I mean, I don't actually want to be Kojima, but we're probably around the same height. Like, <laughs> wow, we've we've already devolved into Lauren's short discourse. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you got to make strong comparisons between you and the people that you respect. Oh, is is this your is this your compliment sandwich? You are, you are <laughs> you're you're a great are, game developer. You are short, but you make you great are, games. <laughs> you make, hey, now that's what people. That's the first thing people recognize about me. Is that they're like, oh, Lauren, you, you're really short. And I'm like, thanks. Yeah. And they're like, no, I just thought you'd be taller. And I'm like, yeah. Wait, why do we, okay. big, well, everything's on Zoom now. Oh, yeah, uh, that's no true, one's yeah. met me in real life, but I am about to meet a coworker today for the first time, uh, like in person, uh, which is actually really exciting, right? I, it's it's going to be fine. Uh, we'll be in open space. Um and I think that that's what's really interesting is I definitely am going to get the you are shorter than I thought you would be. <laughs> well, uh, that, okay. Well, I'm walking let's, there. So well, anyway. Yeah. Creative out, direction. Out of that discourse. So, but the thing is, so then, but then let's talk about a few examples of, of like, you know, games or game series where like there is a perception that that sort of like centralized creative direction exists when the reality is is just the opposite. And the reason why we, we bring this up is because that was sort of what was revealed to us about Assassin's Creed is that like we were looking for consistent creative direction where only a franchise exists. exists. And that's fine. Like the franchise is one that people like. Well, and some people like Lauren do in fact object to the, the inconsistency of sort of the meta narrative of the series. But, you know, it's a stabby game and you get to be a stabby person and it's got good combat systems. And, and honestly, that yeah. that could be a creative director's job is just like, look, I want a stabby game that has good combat systems where you get to stabby people. And honestly, in in a, is it I was about to call it Valhalla. I don't think that's what it's called. It's called Assassin's Creed and it's not Valheim. Good it is Valhalla. It, no, it is it's Valhalla. A, it's Assassin's okay. Creed Valhalla. Yeah. Assassin's Creed Valhalla. You're the one who's played this game. <laughs> I have, no, I know, but everyone's playing Valheim now, and I am oh, that's true, continually yeah. get confused. Um, what I will say is, though, playing that, not only are you like a stabby person, you can duel like axe wield stabby people, right? So yeah. now you're multi stabbing people. And have there are variations played, of stabbing. Yes, right? you were right. There are variations of stabbing. So if that is the creative direction, I think that actually goes in line with it. Um, Okay, to answer, to go back to your, or to go to your point where you're saying, like, is there a property where the direction actually was different? I'm actually curious to know, why do we say Hideo Kojima is the reason why the Metal Gear Solid games are what they are? And and go into that a little bit further. What comes to my mind immediately is Ken Levine in Bioshock, that yeah. series. I do actually think that he is a very strong proponent of that. But he is not working on the next Bioshock game. Nope. Um, that is actually being done by another company. Well, the and thing. So, 
Well, the thing is, I don't think a game like Bioshock needs um, that sort of like top-down dictatorial presence as much, precisely because of the strength of its world building. Because the thing is, you can also have like a vision of a war. See, the thing, the, the thing with Assassin's Creed is that it may doesn't necessarily have that strong meta, meta narrative because it doesn't really have a strong worldview, whereas the Bioshock games do. Like they have a very clear sense of like not just what their world is, but how the games interconnect with each other and like the mood, like that it's all that subjective stuff that we keep talking about that people really diminish in importance, but is really important. Cause the thing is that like a Bioshock game can have a completely different story from its predecessors. Although, you know, one and two have fairly clear relationships to each other because in two you play as a big daddy, which you saw literally in the first game. So like those two have an obvious thematic connection, but like all of the Bioshock games feel the same way. And I don't really know how else to say it other than that, because to me, that's what sort of creates that feeling of a cohesiveness that you would otherwise get from a clear creative vision, because the Metal Gear Solid games also have that feel. Even if you are playing like the original game for, I don't think it was, it was for this random computer system, but it came out, it was on the Nintendo, the NES, when it was released in North America. Um, like, regardless of whether you're playing that original game or you're playing, you know, Phantom Pain, like, all of those games feel the same. You you have the same, like, the thing is, the original Metal Gear Solid was completely isometric, whereas now there are, you know, th- you know 3D third-person <clears throat> action games. But the sort of the subjective mood that each one invokes of a kind of like being dropped into a scenario that you don't understand, having to put it together, but then also having to piece together like the past of the individual that you're playing. Like, I think that's consistent across all of those games. You, that you probably... sounds exactly like getting your first job at a game development studio, though. <laughs> Maybe that's Which what... just makes me realize that every really well-done property is really just an allegory for what is going on in the author's mind at that time. That wouldn't surprise me, actually. No, it's very true. I think it came up on Twitter discourse here that every well-done game narrative is truly a marker of the developer's like situations at the time. So if you play this really enriched world full of lore and mystery and feeling, and you're like, this is a very deep mood, it is reflective of what the development of that game is as well. Yeah. Right. And you see this a lot, even in the game journey, which was released back in 2012, which at first is this kind of beautiful marker, maybe for the afterlife or maybe re-experiencing rebirth. Yeah. And then when you talk to the creator, Genova Chan, you realize he's like, this is what it, it means to make a video game. Yeah. And like that blew my mind because I was like, what? And it's all the stages of development. It's what you go through. You go through the death of your product. And then at the end of it, the product all comes together in the end. And it's a beautiful experience. But it's not to say that everything isn't beautiful about that game. It's to say that he yeah. saw that reflection. So... I don't know. I didn't actually play a lot of the Metal Gear Solid games. I just, I yeah. don't think I was allowed. They're rated M. And at the time they were all released, like I was but a Wii youth. Yeah. I mean, so there are a lot of things that are in terms of like systems that are consistent across those games. Like the, I mean, they're, they're stealth based and in many ways, Metal Gear and then later Metal Gear Solid really sort of 
they were at the like the cutting edge of what those stealth based games like were supposed to be had a heavy influence on games like thief which thief is a really important game in the history of these sort of stealth based action games yep and so like there are things that are sort of in terms of like the feet like play gameplay that are consistent across them but what i'm trying to talk about is the fact that like as the the series progresses like and then you know playing a solid snake solid snakes um antagonistic relationship with various other characters and the way in which like snake ages over the course of the games and so the thing is like snake is not just a consistent presence in terms of being like a main protagonist but you also have the feeling that like by playing through the games in sequence you're playing through a person's life and so it has that same quality whereas in a game like journey sort of the allegory is a little bit more abstract in metal gear solid and in successors, like it's it's much more literal. Like you are literally like living through the stages of this person like person's life, even as you flash back, because as as Solid Snake gets older, and there, there's a really um, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a really great scene in one of the Metal Gear Solid games in which like Snake literally has to like slog through visions of his own past, and it's so. It, it's both gut wrenching in that moment, but also like if you've played all of the previous iterations, of, you know, of the series, you're like, God, I remember that. And like when I, I don't remember feeling that way when I played it, but is that how this feels to this character? And you're sort of reinterpret like in the same way that when you live through something, you are in many ways often like re-experiencing your own past in your present, and that sense is in the game, like, and that is very, very clear. And, you know, there are a lot of things that are really stupid about Metal Gear Solid. I'm not trying to, like, claim that it is 100% perfect. Like, some of the character designs are extremely objectifying. Let's just put it that way. But that's not what's good about the game. I prefer to... I don't... I'm throwing away the hamburger. I don't want to talk about the bad things in, you know, the context of the good things. Just talk about the good things. Well, it, let's... let's to be To be a little bit more politic about it, it's not that we're not talking about it. It's that every, right, creative authority regardless of whether they are like have their hands in every pie or they have a more laissez-faire approach and allow everyone to make decisions. Yeah. But to this creative metric, at the end of the day, the objectification of women and or the relegation of women in some of the properties led by a creative director named Hideo Kojima <laughs> is more of a reflection on that own internal bias that yeah. has been kind of perpetuated, but yeah. not necessarily, right, something that we need to have to talk about in order to talk about how the actual feel and mood of these properties, yeah, right, is in the creative direction. And I want to focus on that because I just am reading Ready Player Two, and I could talk about the relegation <laughs> and the misogyny, right, of women and minority characters all the live long day. Okay, after yeah, reading yeah. that, I am at bullet 20, which is just ugh. And like an, a really long sad face. Um, okay, like that is how my critique has gone. The longer I've critiqued something, yeah, it gets like really, really great, like really exciting to bullet twenty sad face. Just a line of just a line. I just drew a line. I don't know what I'm I'm gonna go back to. So on back to that note, um, onto that creative authorship. I find that incredibly like passioning like i find myself wanting to ask right how do you make that marker yeah 
right? But also knowing and recognizing that as someone who is not, say, in a creative directorship role, how do you even birth that as, say, like a level designer, right? Someone who's making all of the quests. Like we talked about the writer for Final Fantasy XIV, where someone saw the quest that she was doing, saw the writing she was doing, and then propelling that forward. Yeah. But if you don't have those people in good leadership positions or creative directors that reward that, and there's not necessarily a place for you to become that lead, right? I don't think that that's actually something that you graduate into. Also, we were kind of recognized that without a creative director, right? Yeah. We learned that a franchise morphs and expands because its team completely changes and morphs and expands. And so when we look at a franchise like Metal Gear Solid that had that creative authorship, have we not had a Metal Gear Solid since he left? Like, I don't think we have. No. And I think it would be hard for Konami to get away with making one that wasn't, that didn't have Kojima. Because the thing is, like, there have been Metal Gear properties that are like, you know, that there have been mobile games, that there have been things that are sort of like tangentially related that use the IP but none of them that are considered to be sort of like within the like the primary stream of like the game's narrative life. If they were to try and produce a Metal, Metal Gear Solid 6 um, without Kojima, I don't think it would do well. One, because I don't, I think it would be very hard for them to produce without that clear like creative direction, but also because I think there would be just a lot of straight up backlash. Like people would be like, what, I agree what with the backlash yeah. part. It could be the creative direction part. So let's dig into that. And instead of Kojima, though, let's go into a different property just to kind of step away from, say, the figure of who Kojima is, right? That huge, I don't want to be like personality, um, but, you know, he's a very well-known name. And also we've kind of established in this podcast that he is someone to like that has that authority, right? There would be backlash if there was a Metal Gear Solid game. Let's look at Ken Levine and the point that you brought up about world building. Yes. I really love the idea that you're saying something that Kojima has done is not the world building of Metal Gear Solid, but you mentioned that his character, right, of Solid Snake, that's what really kind of enwrapped kind of Kojima and really showed, right, what he was really good at, that that kind of character. But you're saying that Bioshock now is being currently done by Cloud Chamber uh, up in Montreal. Yeah. Hey. Uh, <laughs> hey, I know. And Ken Levine is actually working at another studio called Ghost Story Studios over in the East Coast, I think Boston or New York or something. Okay. Um, I only I only mention this because I just I happened to know I'm in the game development industry, you know, I, I know things that are publicly available like the rest of you. <laughs> things that you could read on the internet like I <laughs> things that you could read on the internet. Yeah. Uh no, one of my old TAs uh used to work for Ken Levine, actually, on Bioshock oh, okay. 3. And he awesome. was one of the lead, yeah, he was one of the level designers slash like lead level designers that worked with him. And so, you know, I have like some of that backstory, not going to get into it, but I, I, knowing that backstory, I kind of recognize that like Ken Levine was a little bit on the Bioshock properties like Kojima, like he had that authority. He wanted that type of consistent world, right? And that world building that a lot of it came from Ken Levine. Right. Okay. But something that you mentioned is that Bioshock. Now he's not currently doing Bioshock. Yeah. Something you mentioned though, with Bioshock's world and its world narrative being established so well, kind of, I don't know. It got me thinking. Like Bioshock does have an established world. It doesn't actually have like an established character. No. Right. No, because the character changes. It shifts every yep. every time. And so, yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
No, so it makes me wonder. I am curious. Did Ken? Did he do that on purpose? Did he have, or was that like his right style was, I'm going to create this really incredible world, but because there's no character, now another team could come in and right, fill in that void, the void of no character. Versus someone like Kojima spends a lot of his effort on a character. And right? characters, yeah. There's a lot of and really characters. Well characters, yeah. Nobody can replace those characters, right? Yeah. Those are from his brain. Yeah. Now, game development doesn't work in a vacuum, though. It's not just no. Ken Levine, and it's not just Kojima. Yeah. And so that's kind of where the whole theory breaks down, is that, or the theory, like, really comes, like, to to light, and the, the, the idea of these people being authority figures kind of breaks down, is that, yeah, Kojima has these characters, but how much was influenced by the marketing or the feedback of his team, right? How much was influenced by quest designers, like on Bioshock 3, yeah. right? Now we have this world narrative and this history. Is it the properties and the franchise? Is it the creative directors? How much is it actually a creative director versus just hapless level designer who just makes a lot of really good levels, right? Yeah. And now suddenly he's over at Cloud Chamber, but Ken Levine is not, right? So I th this is going to be sound like a weird digression oh. at first, but sorry, go uh, ahead. To be fair, just so yeah. everyone's clear, Ken Levine is not at Cloud Chamber, not because... Um, because he has his own studio, like he is now the yeah. head of, a, of, a, of his own studio. So just so everyone's clear, uh, just in that particular instance, I want to make sure that all of our listeners out there understand that it's not like, I'm not talking about a forceful takeover or, or whatever. Um, best to my knowledge, he has his own studio, like an entire studio dedicated to his work. So he is now in the same bucket as Kojima, which <laughs> is why I compared them. So when it comes to the question of like, how do you get to a state where like an entire like world system, because in many ways games kind of, especially modern AAA, AAA games present to you sort of a world system that you can play. And so the question is, how do you get like this army of people to create this world system and yet still follow this like singular vision or creative direction? And it goes back to this question of what authority is in the first place. So I want to use a medieval conception of the author. And the medieval conception of the author is essentially God. Now, I'm an atheist. So for me, this is more of an academic exercise. But in the Middle Ages, there was this conception of God as quite literally the author of creation. Now, what that meant was not like God specifically micromanaged and like, you know, put this thing here and this thing here and this thing here and this thing here. But that God created a, a system an entire universe and within that universe all of sort of like the parts that they created could be self could be both like reflective of god's pur purpose but also self-generating in other words there's the idea that like human so the reason why this is important in the middle ages because they were constantly thinking about the question of free will and the idea is that like okay wait but if there is this all-powerful thing that created everything doesn't that mean that we as human beings have no free will? And there are actually some medieval philosophers who were like, yeah, no, you don't have any free will. However, a very famous one by the name of St. Augustine was like, no, that's not actually how this works. That's not what, first of all, it's not what free will is, but also like just because like God created us, you know, in the system doesn't necessarily mean that the things that we produce personally are like they, they don't belong to god but god can be aware of like what we will do in the same way that like if you are in a design studio 
and you hire someone who like, you know, in the interview process is like, yeah, you know, I, I played Bioshock one and two, I really understand it. And if in the conversation they demonstrate to you that they have a really clear understanding of the kind of games that you have produced and the kind of games that you will produce, you can rely on them without micromanaging them to produce the kind of thing that you want out of them. And the, and the way that works is precisely because the person who has come to you from outside has already, in a sense, like bought into the vision, bought into your ideas, like agrees with the direction that you want to go and isn't necessarily going to be a thorn in your side precisely because they, they want to make the game that you want them to make and they don't have to be told how to make it. And so that's how the sort of the whole auteur theory works is that even though you have a whole bunch of people who like seemingly come from different places, either like creatively or personally, and the kind of person who may have come into that system and like abreact to it and says like, you know, I don't really like, I can't be the kind of person to create this. Sometimes they experience that as like, Oh, everyone else is doing it wrong. You're all stupid. But really in many ways, what they're expressing is I'm not the kind of person who can create the thing that is expected of me. I need to go somewhere else or I need to do my own thing because I like that is my form of like personal expression. Some people can sort of tamp that down. Some people can just say like, oh, you know, it's just a job. I'm just, you know, writing code. I'm just building levels. I'm just making maps. It's fine. It's whatever. And for some people, they can't. But for a lot of people, like they buy into it. And because they buy it. So the, the person that uh, Lauren alluded to earlier, Ishikawa, who was, um, who was now the lead, lead writer on Final Fantasy XIV, um, started off as like, you know, bottom of the totem pole like she is a perfect example of the kind of person who buys into the creative vision and can reproduce it precisely because she's already on the same page she doesn't actively have to be told how to write a character like Thancred because she is already sort of in that headspace she's already inside of that world and so if you have someone who comes and works on you know a Bioshock game who's played Bioshock 1 who is <laughs> dissected it to the extent that both Lauren and I have in the past, like they don't need to be told how to make it. They already understand how to make it and they can make a new thing that rep that sort of represents it. Everything that he just said, we could end the episode right there. I have nothing <laughs> to add as always. That's a lie, but <laughs> I think that honestly, everything that he kind of hit on kind of makes me understand why, um, why game development is as complex as it is. Yeah. And also the big difference between Kojima and Levine. Yeah. Um, I think also, right, this does actually may come down to a language barrier as well, right? Kojima has his studios. I think that he does have a Japanese speaking studio, but there are a lot of English speakers that work with him. Some, yes. Some. Yeah. And whenever, right, you have that breakdown, there are things lost in translation just inevitably. But it may come down to what I've like, and this is a rumor. So I am waiting for Nicholas to correct me. But Levine, I know, spoke just spoke constantly of his vision to anyone who would listen. This yeah. is the world. This is how to create a character. This is how the story works. You know, and by damn it, if you don't have the story working exactly like this, then this is exactly this is completely contrary to like the nation of Bioshock, right? Yeah. Um, which is fine if you have that. If that is your authority, right, and that is how you will demonstrate your authority. That is one way of demonstrating authority. But yeah. another way of demonstrating it is to keep all of the authority to yourself. You yes. have to make all the decisions and to yeah. not explain those decisions, right? Move that pixel to the left, move that tree to the left, call yeah. back to our hapless level designer. <laughs> Poor hapless level designer. <laughs> right? 
If the level designer isn't explained to why the tree needs to be moved to the left, they can never reproduce that same feeling, say, with a rock or a house. Precisely. They are going to have to be told every single time. Like, that breeds a kind of micromanagement precisely because since the first time you had to tell them exactly what to do, they are now going to need to be told exactly what to do every single time because you have not gone through what is the um, the creative director's primary job, which is to sort of train people into your vision. Like if you have a bunch of, most of the people who work in game studios are extremely talented individuals. If there is a problem in terms of them producing the kind of work that you need from them, the problem is actually most likely not with them. It's with the person whose responsibility it is to get them involved in the production, involved in the creative vision of what they're supposed to be doing. And if they have been told, like, do X, Y, and Z down to, like, the tiniest little minutiae every single time, they're never going to be that person. They're never going to have that buy-in. No, they never will. And having worked in AAA, I can absolutely tell you that's exactly how it falls out. And having at least, like, known some, some work with my friends that I've worked with Levine, or just like just two people, I'm going to say, I'm going to be completely honest. I only know two. Um, like absolutely understanding, right, why that person makes decisions, even if you don't agree with them, allows them to probably, right, go and make more of those same decisions, even if they don't agree with that decision that they're making. And especially yeah. in AAA or when you get to a studio or even a culture where maybe you don't uh, like the game, it's very easy that in your career you are going to work on a game that you would never play. But if you understand why someone is making that decision, right? Like, hey, players love stealth and they want to basically play Thief Remastered. We don't have the licensing for Thief Remastered. We're not actually able to make Thief Remastered. And also we're in third person, so we can't really be Thief Remastered. By the way, though, everyone loves stealth because they want to play this. So even though you're a run and gunner, you will never have that in this game ever because our audience wants Thief. Yeah. Now, suddenly, you as the designer go, okay, I'm making a lot of combat heavy levels because I was told to have a lot of enemies. But what I actually need to look at is less, say, direct combat and more indirect combat. So while my level might be everyone was facing me and I'd have to try to evade them, if people want thief, it's actually more important for them to be turned away from me so that I don't actually have to engage them. But if I do choose to engage, they don't alert like the whole facility. Yeah. And that is an example straight from Dishonored slash Dishonored 2. Yeah. Um, which are also fantastic game game franchises. Play Dishonored or Dishonored 2. They are the exact same game. Yeah. Um, and honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. Dishonored 2 is quite literally Dishonored, the second one. So, <laughs> so it's fine. And if you want to play if you want to play a female, play Dishonored 2. Done. Uh, it is the it is Dishonored the second. And they do a lot, they improve a lot, and they do a lot more cool things with it. So yeah. you should just play the sequel. As an example where I'd be like, the sequel is better than the original. Well, um, because it is. Well, I think but, that, yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, I think that's no, done, so, done and dusted for, for, for this one. Um, I want to yeah. thank everyone for listening to our babble. Hopefully you got something out of that. Lauren, is there anything you want to leave the fine people with? The only thing I want to say to just wrap it up is remember that when creating your own experiences or maybe just anything in your life, understanding why is more important than telling someone how to do something because they'll always figure it out on their own. Really, you just need to tell them why are they going to do it. And with that, thank you guys for listening as well. Thank you for supporting the Patreon. Um, And if you aren't supporting the Patreon, then 
go ahead and please sign up for that. You know where to find us and argue with us on Twitter. And we look forward to next week. Mm-hmm.